All right, guys. Um, can I get your attention, please? <coughs> um, thanks for coming to the seminar. We're very excited to do this with you. Um, the first thing I'd like you to think about is um, just have a think to yourself about what a, a proud person looks like. If you think of someone who has a problem with pride, what they seem like. Um, on your handouts, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis. I'll read it out right now. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Um, just, I'd just like to spend uh, maybe five minutes thinking about a question on the sheet. How does this change the way that you think of pride? Uh, just discuss with the people next to you, pairs of threes and so on. Can you hear me through this? Is it... Uh... Yeah. yeah. You, you heard it. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll draw you back in there. And, um, I won't ask for feedback right now, but hopefully you agree that the big thing that comes across in C.S. Lewis's quote is that pride is very much about comparison. The proud person gets assurance and value only through comparison with other people. As Lewis says, it's not so much about being rich or being clever or being attractive that people are proud of, but being richer or cleverer than other people. At least I want to show today that the sin of pride is so insidious that it can take quite a wide range of forms. One form looks a lot like what we'd usually call pride, where someone is, seems to love themselves and take a lot of pride and joy in being better than others. But there's another form of pride that looks like self-deprecation and thinking very harshly and unfavorably about the self. There's one type of proud person that loves themselves because they think they're better than others, and another type of proud person hates himself because they think they're worse. Ultimately, it's about comparison either way. Both are self-absorbed. And what really matters to both is that they're better than others. It's just that one of them has achieved it and the other one feels that they haven't. Elise and I found the book The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by Tim Keller to be really helpful with dealing with this sort of thing in our own lives. And that's what the main book of this session is. Imagine it's in my hand right here. It's uh, on the bookshelf. I didn't uh, take one, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> the great news, as we'll see in the seminar, is that God has equipped us as believers and Christians to overcome this type of sin. And I'll just invite Elisa up to tell us a bit more about that right now. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to spend some time talking about why bondage to the ego is a sin problem and how it impacts our lives before handing back to Dan, who will tell us more about how the gospel frees us from the bondage of the ego and it frees us to be self-forgetful. My hope is that by wrestling with this relevant and very personal topic, we will grow closer to God 
and find peace in the freedom of the gospel. But before we continue, let's pray and ask God to show us our own hearts. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can reflect on your word and encourage each other. We pray that as we approach this topic of um, self-forgetfulness and deal with our own pride, we pray that you would soften our hearts, help us to see where this sin is personal for us, the different ways that we are prideful um, in both self-loathing and self-exaltation. Lord, I pray that you would free us to fix our hope and our identity on you and the unchanging truth of who we are in Christ as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. How often do we consider God in our thoughts each day in comparison to how often we think about ourselves? What I want, how I feel, what will make me feel good. The orientation of my own heart certainly tends towards being more me-centred rather than God-centred. And it's safe to say that both you and I have too small a view of God and too large a view of ourselves. It's not just that being inward-looking and me-centred is unideal in our Christian lives. Rather, it is the very heart of our sin problem. The orientation of our hearts impacts how we live out our lives in all sorts of ways from the way we think and feel, to our relationship with God and with others. It is our me-centred heart posture that causes our sin problem of pride. When we are self-absorbed, we are in bondage to our egos. And by ego, we mean how we think about and evaluate ourselves. And this is the natural state of the human heart without Jesus. We're trapped trying to satisfy our need for self-affirmation. As Dan mentioned in the introduction, bondage to the ego can look like self-exaltation or self-loathing. But the root of both is the same. It's pride. And pride is by nature comparative. Whether we are trying to see how much better we are or how much worse we are than other people, it's still a competition either way. When we take pride in what we have, we are not giving God the credit or the thanks We're not rightly attributing God's good gifts to him. And on the other hand, we can be equally prideful in what we don't have, how hard we have it in comparison to other people. Pride can creep into our hearts really subtly. From the outside, we might not look prideful. We may look like we are serving God and others with the right motives. But we can do the right things with the wrong motives, out of fear or with selfish motives to make us feel better or look better. In the complexity of the inward-looking human heart, we can often experience a mix of both of these manifestations of pride, both self-loathing and self-exaltation, at the same time. And we can often be very blind to the pride in our own hearts and lives. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says... That the heart is deceitful above all things. The table in your handout includes some practical examples of what a person with an inflated or deflated ego might look like that Dan and I came up with last week. Though it may not always seem obvious to associate low self-esteem and pride with each other, even countercultural, there are some big similarities between them. 
Both are examples of an inflated person and a deflated person are inwardly focused and me-centred at their root, rather than being God-centred. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to a church that is full of division. The church has been planted by Paul, but other evangelists had come to Corinth later on. Groups following different leaders within the church had arisen, causing much disunity as they jostled for power. And Paul said that the root cause of this division within the church was pride and boasting. In 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul urges the Christians in Corinth to not take more pride in one person over another. And the word he uses for pride in verse 6 is an unusual word, literally meaning to be overinflated, swollen, puffed up. It is related to the word for bellows, which is a device with an airbag, which can be used to inflate or deflate to blow air into a fire. Not something we'd potentially use in everyday life. But Paul is teaching the Corinthians something about the human ego here by using this evocative imagery. The human ego in its natural state tends towards being proud and puffed up. In Tim Keller's short book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he uses an analogy of a balloon puffed up by air. A puffed up, overinflated balloon represents pride and self-exaltation. And a deflated balloon represents an ego with low self-esteem and self-loathing. A balloon that is puffed up and overinflated is in danger of being deflated, whilst an already deflated balloon lacks what the inflated balloon has. And therefore he shows that pride and low self-esteem are connected. Tim goes on to say, If we are puffed up by air and not filled up with something solid, then to be overinflated or deflated comes down to the same thing. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. One has what the other does not. Both states come down to pride. And both are built upon worldly values and comparison. When the human ego is not filled up with something solid, when our identity does not rest on something unchanging, it will instead be puffed up by air. And this causes the human ego to be empty, painful, busy and fragile. So let me explain what I mean here. Firstly, the human ego is empty. When God is not at the centre of our hearts and lives, nothing else will truly satisfy us or give us real, lasting purpose, security and identity. Anything less than God will be too small to fill our egos, leaving us empty. Secondly, they are painful. When we are inward-looking and me-centred, we are constantly self-conscious, thinking about how we look, how we are treated, whether other people see us favourably, whether that's at a conscious or unconscious level. Our egos are often hurt or slighted when we feel we are not being treated how we want to be. And we struggle to be outward-looking towards God and others when our egos are painful and drawing attention to themselves. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that the easiest way to find out how proud you are is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when people slight me or refuse to take any notice of me or they show off and patronise me? We so often desire to be more important 
than others to be recognised. And our egos are painful when we place our identity and value on anything other than God. Thirdly, they are busy. Our egos are always at work at some level. They are incredibly busy trying to fill the emptiness. And the more we try to fill our egos by comparison and worldly things, the more it is unsatisfied. Our egos need constant feeding and insecurity is insatiable. No one can adequately build us up. Ultimately, unless we understand that it's not about us to begin with, then we will never be content. And lastly, our egos are fragile. When our egos are inflated by what we have or don't have in a worldly sense, they can easily be deflated. Like an overinflated balloon, they are at constant risk of being deflated. There will always be someone who is more popular, more clever, more successful, or more good-looking. So the ego will always be at risk and in danger of deflation. It's fragile. When our egos are not fixed on something solid, we live life in a courtroom. We are on trial, constantly looking for how people weigh us up and what their verdict of us is. Do they like us? Do they approve? Do they think we are successful or kind? Are we being validated or condemned? We so often cannot even live up to our own standards, let alone other people's standards for us, before we even think about God's standards. When we are validated, it often leads to pride, and when we are condemned by others, it leads to self-loathing. Think for yourself for a moment. What do you tend to fall into more? Being puffed up with self-exaltation or deflated with self-loathing. We're going to take about 10 minutes to discuss the questions on your sheet just below the table before I hand back over to Dan to tell us a bit more about how Christ gives us the freedom of self-loathingness. It's a nice natural lull, isn't it? Um, so yeah, thanks uh, for that, Elise. And I guess we got sort of two parts to this talk. The first part is obviously exposing our issues with this ego, but the second part is the good news of the gospel for this issue. I've got two key takeaways in this section. The first is to, our advice is to find your identity in Christ as opposed to comparison with others. And the second is that real change towards this mindset comes through God's powerful word. I think firstly, it'd be good if you could open your Bibles to Philippians 3. Um, and if you just read the, whole, read the whole chapter in your groups. Um, I won't do that from up here. Uh, and we'll spend about 10 minutes uh, thinking about the, the questions that are on the sheet. About how Paul finds his identity in Christ in this section. And how that affects his priorities and so on. So, yeah, spend about 10 minutes doing that. I'll be back up. Sorry, just before that, sorry, I think it's helpful to... I forgot to read this part of the script. Um, it's helpful to notice that Paul isn't actually directly talking about the ego problem here. I think it's important to recognize that he's talking to the Philippian church at a time when people are trying to tell them that they need to earn... Um, the righteousness 
through other things. But Paul makes some very helpful statements about his identity uh, in Christ, which has implications for this. So, yeah, please get started in that 10 minutes. I'll, uh, I'll draw you guys back in there. Um, <clears throat> hopefully from your discussions, you've seen that Paul is someone whose identity is so firmly rooted in Jesus and what he's done for him that he's really transformed as a person. In 1 Corinthians 4, which is the main text of Keller's book that this is based on, Paul goes so far to say, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not judge even myself. Um, Paul's sense of self-identity is rooted in Christ to the extent that he, one, he doesn't need to satisfy his ego by, uh, (laughs) by being better than others. Paul happily calls himself the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners. He follows Jesus' command to be the servant of all, rather than exalting himself. But secondly, Paul also isn't deflated and loathing himself on account of other people's opinions or comparative success. Paul says, I do not even judge myself. His standing before God is more important to him than his standing before others, and even his standing before himself. He's happy to call himself the chief of sinners, but he's also confident enough in his transformation through Jesus that he can tell people to imitate him, which I think is quite interesting. Um, On your sheet, you'll have a a bit that says finding your identity in Christ means having three things. This isn't an authoritative, comprehensive list, but it's three things that we thought um, an identity in Christ consists of. First thing is proper priorities. The news of the gospel changes our priorities. Um, and we see this. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. Lost the. <laughs> okay. Uh, we see this in sort of three things. The Christian prioritizes following and knowing Jesus. We see in this chapter, Philippians, that Paul is happy to suffer the loss of all things. All this gain he had of being a respected Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's happy to lose them all in order to gain Christ and to know him better. For someone who has found their identity in Christ, Christ himself is the most important thing to them. If you remember the story of Mary and Martha and Luke, Mary, uh, sorry, Martha is distracted by anxieties and troubles, but Mary shows that she has the right priority. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has chosen the good portion. And that one necessary thing is listening to Jesus being taught by him and getting to know him better. Finding identity in Christ means putting him at the top of our priorities. Second thing that it means is to prioritize the glory to come rather than earthly gain. Paul mentions in this chapter that there are some people who oppose the faith out to desire for earthly gain now rather than gain in heaven in verse 18. He says, For many of whom I have often told you And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. 
Someone who's inflated or deflated prioritizes the earthly gain of gaining people's respect or admiration. But finding identity in Christ means not seeking after fleeting temporary gain. But as Paul says in verse 14, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, the person who's transformed by Jesus prioritizes the genuine service of others rather than self-advancement. Someone who suffers from inflation or deflation can get distracted during the service of others because on some level it's actually self-service. It's not good enough that God delights in your service of others, but you have to have people recognizing your virtue as well. Sometimes the deflated person might feel that they un- might be unwilling to serve because they'll only do it badly and embarrass themselves. Well, finding identity in Christ means that the priority of service is higher than the priority of not embarrassing yourself or not making mistakes. Finding identity in Christ also gives us a proper gospel assurance. It's an assurance that's not based on our performance, but based on God's revelation and promise to us in the Bible. If we look at verse 12, Paul is assured that he belongs to Christ. If you have your identity in Christ, you will find great assurance knowing that you belong to Christ in a very real way. He bought you for himself at the price of his own blood. And if you've been redeemed and forgiven by Jesus, you're his now, not even your own. Jesus says in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is encouraging to us because if Jesus owns you, he loves you and he'll never let you go. There's a a double lock in this passage of being in Jesus' hand and in the Father's hand. He will always hold on to his sheep and they will remain in his love forever, regardless of what happens. We're also given assurance as Jesus' sheep that we have received righteousness as a gift from God. Elise mentioned that it's often like being in a courtroom in your mind and constantly awaiting a verdict. But in the gospel and in Christ, the verdict, innocent and loved, is given to us as a gift from God. Ultimately, it matters far more what God thinks of us rather than other people or even ourselves. And through Jesus, we can receive a verdict that doesn't count our sins against us. Having an identity in Christ also gives us the assurance that God is powerfully at work within you. I mean by this, that if, if you believe God is changing you through his Holy Spirit to make you more like Christ every day. And this is an objective work that is happening whether or not you feel like it. One verse that's really nice in Philippians is Philippians 1.6. That Paul is assured that the God who began a great work, a good work in the Philippians, will bring it to completion. And we know that we're not perfect and never will be while we live. There's no point comparing ourselves. But God has given us a sweet promise that for the believer, the trajectory overall throughout life is growth. So identity in Christ is proper priorities, a gospel assurance, and finally a corrected vision. 
What I mean by this is that your view of the world and the self is changed completely by Jesus. Look at how Paul's view is clear that his standing before God is more important than his standing amongst people. Verses 3 to 11. Paul has lots of reasons for confidence and pride in his background, his education, his abilities, his zeal. But in verse 8, he counts it as rubbish if he doesn't have righteousness given through faith in Christ. How you stand before God has got to be more important than how you measure up to other people's opinions or to even your own opinion. Corrected vision also means that seeing what is to come is better than what we have now. That assurance comes across very clearly in verses 19 to 21. And it also means being forward-looking to Christ's return. Paul says in verses 13 to 14 that he forgets what lies behind and strains towards what lies ahead in the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now there's lots of reasons why you might have a deflated view of the self or a low self-esteem. We recognize that. But Paul encourages us that we're allowed to put those reasons behind us because the verdict is in from God that we've been declared righteous. And so we strain towards the holiness that's promised us through the Holy Spirit and we strain towards the prize of heavenly glory. Second key takeaway is how do we attain this self-forgetful mindset that Paul has? Well, real change comes through the powerful word of the gospel. If we look in the New Testament, we can see two big ways that, um, that show God's method for bringing about change in his people. There's two passages here that I've, I've listed that you can look at uh, in your own time. But Titus 2, 11 to 14, shows us that the same grace that saves us through Jesus Christ's death also trains us to make us more godly as we wait for Jesus. And God in his... God in his grace sent Jesus to die for us to take our punishment but he also in that same grace sent us the Holy Spirit to make that verdict of innocent more and more real within us. He changes us from the inside out to make us more like Jesus. It's also important to recognize that the Holy Spirit uses instruments to do this. This work doesn't happen um, without the use of a medium. The normative way by which the Holy Spirit changes people is by the reading, meditation, and conscious obedience to God's word. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, that little passage shows us that scripture equips us completely and trains us for every good work and for righteousness. If you've been convicted by this and you feel you need to forget the self and find identity in Christ, then we've listed a few helpful practical points here to keep in mind with this and to help you. The first one is to prepare for a long battle. We're given a guarantee in the Bible that God works very powerfully in us, but it doesn't necessarily mean that he works quickly. Often deflation and inflation are things that occur on a deeper level than just the surface, and it can take a while for us to change. But we have to continue trusting God's promises, relying on him in prayer, obeying his commands and loving his words and his promises. If it's slow, it's slow. But the, but the growth is guaranteed through Jesus. Secondly, we want you to let the gospel, to shape your, let the gospel shape your vision. 
I like to go bowling with uh, Elise's fiance and our friend Rohan and um, <laughs> the. Elise isn't invited. It's. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, moving on. Next point. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, so, the, but in, in, in the bowling alley, you can choose to get the bumpers up. Um, I, I don't need them personally, um, <laughs> but you, you can get the bumpers up to make sure that the ball doesn't go in the gutter. It sort of bounces between the two sides. And this is a helpful analogy uh, for what happens with the gospel. If we understand the gospel well, we'll be protected from being puffed up. Because the gospel brings us news that God's salvation is a gift and it's not earned by anything we do. But it also protects us from feeling valueless and loathing ourselves because Jesus himself doesn't loathe us. He loves us. And it wouldn't be right for us to loathe something that Jesus loves, would it? So we're protected by those two bumpers. A bumper to protect us from falling into the gutter of self-exaltation and another bumper that protects us from self-loathing. The third practical point is to be on your guard against the world's messages. Lots of media that we consume has underlying messages that can influence us towards self-absorption or self-exaltation or self-loathing or pride. I did do it in the end, but I thought about showing pictures here of different adverts that you get for companies. There's so many products that are marketed to you using the idea of you're not a real man unless you have this, or you're not a real woman unless you have this, or you need this product to be beautiful. The world often profits from our pride and from our sense of inflation or deflation, and so we should be careful to guard our ears against those messages. And finally, practical tip to work together. It's helpful to talk to each other about this topic. It's Sometimes our view of ourselves is sort of skewed. We don't have a perfect mirror in our mind. And so it's helpful to have some trusted Christian friends who can talk to you honestly and correct you when necessary if you're getting a bit puffed up or to help you, or to help you be encouraged when you're growing and you can't see it. Um, so I've just got some final questions uh, for us to discuss, I think we've got time. Uh, how does finding your identity in Christ lead to a healthier view of the self and others? And have a think about the practical points. How can we do each of these more effectively? And we'll spend a bit of time doing that and then we'll pray in the end. Uh, guys, I'm just going to close us in prayer, and then I think we're going for tea break. No, not going for tea break. Um, oh, well, yeah. Yeah.
Okay, well, while, while we're praying, at least can, well, think about the prayer, and then after that can think about it. Um, Father, we thank you uh, so much for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our Shepherd, our King. Uh, we thank you so much that through Jesus we have the verdict of righteous before you, Father, and thank you that through the Holy Spirit you bring about the reality of righteousness in us more and more until we are glorified in heaven. Um, We pray, Father, that you would free us from bondage and slavery to serving our own egos and our own sense of pride, and that you would uh, grant us mindsets like Paul, um, where we can be completely focused on on Christ and the service of others. In Jesus' name, amen.